Hebrews chapter 4. Continuing our modern family series today, research suggests that 20, I know this sounds not like scientific research to me, but 20 to 40 percent, sounds like a number I would come up with, suggests that 20 to 40 percent of married men and 20 to 25 percent of married women will have an affair during their lifetime. That's about one in four women and about somewhere between one and two out of four men. Ashley Madison is a website for people who want to cheat on their spouse. Their tagline is, life is short, have an affair. And just in case you think it's not very popular, it has eight and a half million members uh, spanning across ten countries. The projected revenue this year is $60 million. The owner of the site is Noel Biderman, who is a resident of Toronto, Canada, who says, monogamy, in my opinion... Is a failed experiment. Apparently that doesn't apply to his own life. He's married and has two small kids. One interesting thing, when they interviewed his wife and asked her, how do you feel about your husband leading a company like this? She said, you know, the way we think about it is the person, my, the type business my husband runs does not reflect his own personal values. Uh, he's a different person at home than he is at work, and the way we look at it is it's just a business. The modern family is facing an onslaught of unprecedented challenges, at least in intensity. We have businesses that are profiting from and facilitating the breakdown of the family. What do you do when family breakdown becomes a very lucrative business? When you have businesses that are poised to profit from the breakdown of the family. I think American TV is a reflection, not necessarily a trendsetter in what American life is. I think there's occasionally individual agendas inside it, but I think TV reflects what America is and its movement. So if you look at the posters behind me, you can see across the last 50 years, just from the families that have been presented to us on television, there's a sliding scale. Things have changed dramatically. We, we have moved a long way from the honeymooners. The honeymooners has moved to army wives. And there's a big distance. Now I know some of you don't know who the honeymooners are and some of you don't know who army wives are. Some of you don't know who either one of them are. Trust me, it's a long way. The family's in trouble though. And since the world didn't end yesterday as predicted... I thought that I might step on out and go ahead and deal with one of the um, really pressing issues of our society today. What, what are the forces that come to bear on the family and specifically on the marriage? Today, marriages and families are swimming upstream against a current fueled by adultery, open sexuality, a new definition of marriage, financial pressure, the pressures of raising children in a culture that's no longer family friendly, a lack of strong family history, personal brokenness and personal bondage has increased, a consumeristic culture where individual happiness is absolute king and everything's disposable and nothing's permanent. All of this adds up 
to one painful dynamic in the local family, that's brokenness. Brokenness, and more specifically, divorce. I want to zero in on an epidemic in American life that I think we've become so familiar with and so accustomed to that we become numb in understanding its effect on people. Now, I can't say everything there is to say about divorce this morning. It's impossible. So I'm going to step out and take the risk of being misunderstood. Because you can't cover everything there is to cover on the subject in a few minutes. I'm taking that risk because there are people all over this room this morning who have encountered and been wounded and affected on some level by divorce and in society, things are not getting better. What I'd really rather do is just stick my head in the sand and say, make it stop. But it's, but it's not stopping. And the gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to rise as a voice of healing in the middle of a culture that's gone mad. If, if the church isn't going to talk about it, who's going to talk about it that can do anything about it? How many of you would say, don't think about co-workers, neighbors, or friends? How many of you would say that you have a close relative? Not a relative, a close relative. A, a parent, a child, a brother, a sister, a grandparent, or you yourself have, have been divorced or, or have been impacted by divorce. How many of you would say that that's true? Would you raise your hand? Okay, just keep them up. Would you look around? Not everybody, but most everybody. A very relevant topic. The more spiritual and moral decline our culture faces, the more we're going to keep dealing with divorce. But if the restorating power of God is everything that we say it is, then, then that means that no matter what you've done, or no matter what's been done to you, God's grace can put you back together again. Now look, we can't get into the personal, individual, specific details of everybody's life. So I have to speak generally. Your divorce might have been wrong. Your divorce might have been right. I don't, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a case-by-case basis, and the Scripture gives some very specific guidelines on those instances. But I know this morning, and I came to say to you, that in this issue, all hope is not lost. The traditional family unit, the working father and the mother who stays home as a caregiver, who takes care of 2.1 children, you know, the average... That was 60% of all families in America in 1960. Today, it is 7% of all families in America. The family landscape in America has shifted dramatically and fast. America, when it comes to family issues, has whiplash. We've not caught up yet with or understood what's happened to us and the long-term effect of it. One teenager was talking to another, and he said, I'm really worried. The other one said, why? He said, well, because my dad works hard. He works overtime. He slaves at work trying to make sure that we have everything we need. And, and, he, and he's helping me save for college. And my mom, she stays at home, and she cooks, and she cleans, and she helps me when I'm sick. She takes care of me. She helps me with my homework. 
And she said, he said, well, what are you worried about? He said, I'm worried they might try to escape. Can I say something to you? If you grew up in a home where your mom and your dad were married and they cared for you, you are blessed. And I'm sad to say, you're the exception. You're the exception. But you're blessed. And you were cared for. Now we cannot be the kind of church that only reaches out to impact families because we're running out of them. We have to reach out to people who need God's love. The divorce rate in America has tripled since the 1960s. Statistics vary a little bit, but not much. We now hear that somewhere between 50 and 53% of all first-time marriages in America end in divorce. And there is no statistical difference between Christian couples and non-Christian couples. The divorce rate's the same. Somewhere between 50 and 53% of all first-time marriages in America end in divorce. When you go to second marriages, all second marriages, uh, 70% end in divorce. You go to third marriages, it's 75%. All third marriages, out of all third marriages, 75% end in divorce. Here's what I just want to say to you this morning. If you are married, if you are married, the best chance you have of making your marriage work is sitting right beside you. The best chance you have of making your marriage work is making the one you have now work. Because the further you go, the worse it gets. I forget the number, I read it years ago, somewhere around 75 or 80% of people who divorced and remarried said, if I would have known, I would have faced the exact same issues in the second marriage as I had the first, I would have not divorced in the first place. And you say, well, yeah, because you packed them in your suitcase and you moved them over to somebody else's house. Right? Because, it, uh, shock, it wasn't all them after all. And you had some things that you needed to work on. You know, this is the saddest tragedy to me, I think, are the effects of divorce on children. And I think we live in a time in America when divorce is so common that society basically looks at kids whose parents have been divorced and says, get over it. Everybody's going through what you're going through. You're, you're not different. And so there's no acknowledgement of exactly how difficult and challenging and harmful something like divorce is. At one time, experts in America believed that it took two years for a child to recover from divorce. I don't know why they call them experts. Now, after further study, they're beginning to realize that ten years after the divorce, there are still strong emotions attached to that event. Generally, children of divorce have a difficult time if they ever let go of the hurt, the disappointment associated. Many times they have deep-rooted feelings of hurt, depression, anger, failure, and outrage ten years later. Divorce sets in motion incredible human pain, moving from one house to another, changing schools, changing friends, decisions, where do I do Thanksgiving, where do I do Christmas, do I have a choice, is it my decision? One expert I read felt that the only thing that you could compare to the trauma on the life of a child in divorce is if a child lost their parents in a natural disaster. A natural disaster. Because in a natural disaster, you feel the same things you feel when your parents divorce. 
You've, you are helpless. You have no control. You have no say-so. You might not have seen it coming. You don't, you, don't, you don't have any input in the decision. It changes your entire life. You're vulnerable. You're insecure. You're abandoned. And you're powerless. Paul Bohannon, a social scientist, said that divorce is a process. It's not an event. And he breaks it down into six stages. Six kinds of divorce that happen in, inside of every divorce. The first one is emotional divorce. That's the couple saying, I mean, there's, there's, nothing, there's, nothing, there's nothing left. Emotionally, emotionally, we're dead to each other. So there's emotional divorce where, where, where the couple has grown apart long enough that finally one of them says, this isn't working, let's get a divorce. Then there's the legal divorce. This is basically when the couple, for whatever reason, says, let's just go legally do what we've already done emotionally. I mean, it's done. Let's just make it legal. Then there's economic divorce. This is where you start dividing stuff, deciding on alimony and child support and who's going to pay what. Then there's the co-parental divorce. Where, where are the children going to live? Who are they going to stay with? Who's going to keep them? Who's going to get weekends? Who's going to get summers? Then there's the community divorce. How do we... As children of divorce relate to the community now. How, how do I, as a previous, previously married man, I'm a single dad, single man, divorced person, how do I relate to my friends who are couples now? How do I, as a single mom, a single woman, a single parent, how do I relate? So there's a reintroducing of the entire family unit to society as a, as a divorced family. And how, 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 do we, how do we work that out? And here's the last one, and this surprises me. He said this was actually the worst one. I thought these other five are pretty bad. The last one, psychological divorce. The most difficult of the six aspects to overcome, it involves emotional and psychological separating from your partner. One study found that 86% of divorced people still have an attachment for their previous spouse. I can remember, I can remember how long it took my mom to take off her wedding ring after 35 years of marriage when she and my dad divorced. And she could only describe it as an emotional attachment. I still care about him. Somehow I still love him. No wonder God in His Word said, I hate divorce. Because it is, it does so much damage. It does so much damage. I remember when Stacy and I were in Florida, there was a family in our church that was a great, top-notch, first-class family. They had three, I think a 19 or 20-year-old son, 16-year-old daughter, 12-year-old daughter. And uh, the husband, he had cheated on his wife, had a pattern of this. And she had called him, and then they had gone to counseling for a year, and recovered and restored and they came on a Wednesday night and the church threw a wedding for them and they were remarried and everything looked as though it was going to be good and and then it was a short time after that that he he went back and started all over again and and I can remember uh how how much damage was done that day I can remember when Stacy and I went over to their house remember that we helped them move and uh, the, our church sort of gathered around. They were a two-income family. Could not afford that house anymore with one income. 
The kids are going to go with her. So she's got to, what am I going to do as a single mom? How am I going to support my kids now? And I can remember going over there, and we start unloading loading boxes up into the truck. And I, I mean, I can, I can picture it in my mind like, like, a, like, a, like a steel shot that's frozen there. We walked out in the uh, front, and, uh, and I think she, the 12-year-old daughter, was sitting on the swing on the porch. And she looked like she was looking into the headlights of an oncoming train. She, she was shocked. She was, had been blasted. And Stacy and I went over there and sat in that little swing, and I put my arm around her, and, and, and we weren't even necessarily that close to this girl before. She nestled her little head up under my arm and just dug up in under my arm like a little bird with a broken wing looking for somewhere to hide. And I don't remember, I can't remember any of us talking. I don't remember anybody saying anything. We just swung. And, and she cried. And we just sat and held her and cried. And, and, I, and I saw what it did. It just rocked her. And la- later on, I remember her older sister at our beach camp. I remember looking at her face at the altar one night in a crowd of kids. And she was just, God was starting to heal her, which was good. But you could see a lot of that damage coming out. And then the mom, she told me, the mother was a sharp lady. She, I think she was an Avon salesman or sales lady. One of those. She had a pink Cadillac. How's that? Whichever one does that. Mary Kay, excuse me. All you ladies, go back to last week's message. There is a difference between our brains. She sold Mary Kay, and uh, she was high-octane, type A, great, great lady. And uh, I remember her telling some of our staff, a few of us at the church who were really trying to reach out to her. She said, you know, uh, she said, most days I get up and I get the kids off of school and I just go to bed. Can't have no motivation. I just sleep. Just rocked. Just rocked her. You know why? Because you're grieving a death. When a covenant is broken, when a soul tie is, is, is stretched and broken, when a soul connection, when, a, when a, a two people have been made one flesh and, that is, and there's an attempt to break that, it, there's a death. And it, and it does dramatic damage. And however common it is, and, and how many ever people's gone through it doesn't matter. What matters is that it hurts you when you're in it. And, and it does damage. And that's why God hates it. And so it kind of pushes you to that time in life where you get that feeling that no one understands what I feel. Let's talk about that for a minute. No one, no one understands what I feel. And what the enemy and darkness wants to do is to continue to push those feelings up and whether in reality or perception, make you begin to be overwhelmed with the feeling that nobody understands. What, what darkness wants to do is speak isolation into your life because it's the opposite of what God's plan is for us. But He wants to speak isolation and loneliness to us and to intensify those feelings because He knows that when those feelings get ramped up, we will justify anything we want to do. 
And we will begin to damage and harm our life even more. What do we say? Well, no one understands, so what difference does it make what I do? No one cares, so what difference does it make what I do? You know, that's exactly what the prayer meeting last night in the city of Helena was about. There have been a skyrocketing number of suicides in the city of Helena. And last night, pastors and church members and the mayor and people gathered together to pray in Helena against... You know what leads to that? It's those feelings of isolation. I'm all alone. Isolation leads to suicide. It leads to divorce. It leads to drug addiction. It leads to all kind of compulsive activities because it is a brokenness that, that shatters and pours out every direction. That's why the enemy, one of his big plans, is to enact isolation on us. But... But the thing is, this is exactly what the body of Jesus is for. God, as Psalm says, that God sets the lonely in families. He sets the orphan in families. You are part of a global Christian family of nearly one billion people. And an eternal Christian family larger than that, only heaven knows. But the enemy wants to continue to overwhelm our mind with lies that you are isolated and you are alone and you are by yourself and nobody understands. But the body of Jesus and the family of God gathers around us in the community of faith and denies that, denies that perception. Look around you. Are you really alone? How many people lifted their hand this morning? Are you really alone? It's a lie. Jesus has set us as members of His family and set us inside the body of Christ. Satan attacks us at those moments because he knows we're weak and vulnerable. He wants us to believe that no one understands. Well, I just came this morning to speak from Scripture for a moment to push back against that idea that no one understands. I want to take the Scripture as a weapon and I want to inform and empower your mind and your spirit to understand that there is someone who understands. First off, it's not true in the visual reality in this room. It's not true inside the tangible body of Christ. People you can touch and hug. And He can pray for you. It's not true there, but let me tell you where else it's not true. Jesus understands. Let me read for you a few scriptures about the life of Jesus. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, Jesus was rejected. He was hated and rejected by people. He had, he had much pain and suffering. People would not even look at Him. He was hated and we didn't even notice Him. The Bible says Jesus was rejected. In Matthew 26, it says He was spit on, slapped, and beaten. And we all know about the encounter with the Apostle Peter where the Apostle Peter denied Him three times. Jesus was denied. Not only was He rejected, not only was He spit on and slapped and beaten, He was denied. Not only that, He was refused. In, in uh, Matthew 23... Jesus stood over that great city, Jerusalem, and said, How often did I want you to come to me, but you wouldn't come? He was refused. Rejected, beaten, slapped, denied, refused. In Matthew 12, the Bible says that Jesus was slandered. The Pharisees accused Him of operating in the power of Beelzebub and committing blasphemy. He was slandered. Matthew 26 says He was betrayed. By one of his own inside the circle of twelve. I wonder, I wonder what it felt like the night that Judas came up in the woods and had those guys hiding behind to get him and reached up to put his arms around Jesus as he must have done dozens and dozens of times. 
hugged him in the past. And, 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 and that culture would have given a very appropriate cultural greeting, reached up and kissed Jesus on the cheek. I wonder what that one felt like. I wonder when the night air dried the wet touch of Judas' lips on Jesus' cheek. I wonder what it felt like. I wonder what that cold, betraying hug, backstabbing hug must have felt like. He, he was betrayed. I'm saying this morning, whatever you've been through, someone understands. Jesus understands what it's like to be human, and He understands human weakness. Now, I asked you to turn to a verse as we began this morning, Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Look at this verse, and this is the one that I want you to take home with you. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. You could just stop right there and thank God most of the morning. God has a path of humanity and human experience to draw on to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then, what does that mean? What, 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 what does it mean that he sympathizes with our weakness? What does it mean that he lived a human life and he understands human weakness, but didn't sin? What does it mean? It means that let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So what does it mean? It means that whatever pain's been inflicted on you, there's healing. It means that whatever bad thing that you've done, there's forgiveness. You don't enter God's throne room based on what you've done or not done. You don't, you don't enter it based on how good or bad you've been. You don't enter it based on how healed or how sick you are. You enter it based on the sinless life the unselfish, sacrificial death of Christ, His resurrection, His tearing the veil from top to bottom, and He said, when you come, don't come timid. Enter boldly the throne room of grace. Why? That you may find mercy and grace in your time of need. How many of you need mercy and grace? Look, when a guy comes into the emergency room with his capillaries blown open, bleeding, the doctor doesn't look at him and say, whose fault is this accident, his or somebody else's? Because if it's his, I'm not treating him. I don't know if your divorce was your fault or not. All I know is when somebody's bleeding, let's get the healing done first. And we'll figure that out later. Let's get the healing done first. We are living in a culture that we have got to speak with a voice of clarity on the standard of marriage, but we've got to speak with clarity on the healing that Jesus offers, or you're going to cut out the majority of everybody here. 51%. There's healing. There's hope. You're not alone. If you're married today, I want to say this to you. There's no place to look back to. We cannot undo whether you're on your first marriage or your second marriage or your third marriage. We cannot undo what's been done, but let's boldly enter the throne room of grace and let's believe God today for the grace to make this marriage work. To make the one you've got now. The relationship you're in today.
let's receive the grace of God. We need to make that one work. I'm going to ask our musicians to come this morning. And would you stand with me today? I want to end this uh, message in prayer. I want to pray for you. The enemy of our soul, darkness, wants to do so much damage. He wants to take advantage of every weakness and vulnerability we have. But I just want to ask you to do something. I won't keep you but a minute and, and we'll go. If you are a child of divorce, and here's what I mean by that. it doesn't. You might have been 40 when your parents divorced. But whatever your age is, your parents are divorced. Or you have been through a divorce. No right or wrong, you've just been through a divorce. That's not Today's not the day to decide whether it was right or wrong. If you're either of those, I will not embarrass you. Would you come, and I want you to join me because my parents are divorced. I'm, I'm with you. I'm one of you. If you're a child of divorce, your parents are divorced, you've been through a divorce, would you come and just, I just want to pray with you. I won't embarrass you. Would you just come and stand with me? Just come and stand. Wow. Y'all keep coming around if you can. I know there are people behind you trying to get in. You telling me, you telling me that divorce, right or wrong, whatever, you telling me it hasn't affected, it hasn't affected us? It's done great, great damage. But I, I, I want to I wanna stand with you this morning. I can still remember, I can still remember when I got a phone call at college and my parents were separating, which later led to a divorce. I can remember my first thought was, well, I don't live at home anymore. I'm in college, and, and that, won't, that won't affect me. But, but it, and then I hung up, and as the hours went by, I felt a lot of things I didn't expect to feel. It affected me more than I thought it would. It affects you at any age. Now, obviously, there's a lot of things I was spared. I, I don't compare what I went through to what a child, three or five or ten years old, goes through. Very different. But I, I, I basically want to tell you, I want to give you four simple things. Number one, you're not alone. Don't ever believe the lie that you're alone. You're not alone. Jesus has promised. He won't, he's not a man that he'll lie. He will, not, he will not go back on his promise. He's not alone. Number two, he understands. Number three, you must heal. You must heal. You must heal. Your future is in your healing. It's not in your past. It's not in your brokenness. You must heal. Number four, you must forgive. And that's about it, isn't it? You're never alone. Jesus understands. You must heal. Close your eyes and I just want to pray for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you today.